Well, you want to do that podcast thing we do? Yes, sir. So, here we go. Today is, is September 9th, 2015, and this is episode 130. It's actually a Wednesday, for those keeping score at home. That's right, of the Defensive Security Podcast. And, uh, again, apologies for this being delayed. Um, I, uh, I, won't, I won't, you know, well, I, I think we all know what Andy was doing. Uh well, things and stuff. And, you know, you had a lot of stuff come up, too. Life got busy for a bit there. Well, that's true. That's very true. Uh, so, so actually, we didn't release a, an episode last week because I was at um, HTCIA, which was, was most excellent, by the way. And what is HTCIA? The High Tech Crime Investigation Association Conference uh, down in Orlando. It was very good. Nice. Are we going to get a little recap of that on the show today? Yeah, yeah. So I, I did... Uh, I did have a chance to interview uh, briefly one of the speakers who I thought was particularly good. And uh, so I have, well, I'll play that at the end. Um, but yeah, I'll, uh, I'll give a bit of a debrief. So the, uh, just before we get into that though, the thoughts and opinions we express on this show are ours and do not represent those of our employers. So, um, so I guess getting into stories, the first one we have tonight comes from the register and the title is hackers spend at least a year spying on Mozilla to discover Firefox security holes and exploit them. Wow. So um, apparently the, the big story here is that someone through some means obtained credentials of a Mozilla. I don't know if it was a volunteer or an employee uh, obtained their credentials to their Bugzilla database. And their their database contains, obviously, all of their uh, their known bugs, uh, including uh, things that are you know critical uh, critical severity, and uh, and so uh, allegedly, what happened here is this attacker got in for, I, I guess it's almost two years. They said it's at least September two thousand fourteen. Although I've I've also read possibly as far back as 2013, uh, they're, uh, they're saying that this person had access to 185 secret bugs, of which Mozilla categorized 53 as severe. And uh, they know of at least one that was apparently being exploited. So they don't necessarily know that it was this person or group uh, that weaponized that bug. But um, it's, it's really interesting thing you know and I, I i wonder how often this goes unnoticed in in the software industry well it's a hell of a holy grail to go after and it reminded me of another one i want to talk about in a second but a couple of thoughts i had is why did it take some of them some of these vulnerabilities 335 days to fix which kind of scared me that they had critical bugs with remote exploit capability sitting in Bugzilla, their, their instance of Bugzilla, for at least 335 days, according to the article. 
maybe there's a reason they don't tell us. But it seems to me that that sitting out there for that long is pretty scary because they're assuming, I guess, I would think, I'm assuming they're assuming, that nobody else would stumble upon these problems as well when everybody's beating on these browsers all day long. I guess it seems a little arrogant of them to assume nobody else would know about these problems or couldn't find them. Uh, yeah, it's 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 unclear what the origin of them was. You know, were they internally discovered or were they provided by you know external parties? There's really no no context in that. But you know, the thing that that struck me with this is just the the fundamental concept of you know kind of seeing the you know the the unpleasant underbelly of this. Firefox is, I think becoming pretty well adopted in corporate America or corporate worldwide, really everywhere. And, um, you know, this is, this is kind of the stuff that can go on. And, uh, going back to the point about, you know, vendor management and, um, you know, your, the software that you run, you know, you don't necessarily know, uh, how clean your vendor is, I guess. This is, yeah, this is not. A, this is a scary, you know. I, I think a, a fairly scary scenario, um, especially as these attacks become more and more uh, complicated. So I had two other thoughts that uh, came up as I was kind of doing research on this article. One, if these bugs were being exploited in the wild, did anybody else pick up on that? I, I don't. I don't think so. Right? Or if they did, they didn't have enough of a. Uh, you know, kind of a, enough of a microphone to spread that news, or, or Mozilla sort of did a good job of muzzling that, or whatnot. And, and if they were out there in the wild, this shows me that once again we suck at spotting zero-day attacks. And you know, you would think with all these sandboxing technologies and various other tools, micro VMs and whatnot, uh, somebody would stumble upon some sort of unknown exploit that came from this and you know maybe report it but i don't know maybe they did and yeah i was gonna say no correlation truth be told we don't know that that didn't happen we we that is we, true we do know that they know that one of at least one of the bugs was being exploited and so somehow they came to know that and so was that right. you know mandian calling them up and saying what the hell are you guys doing yeah or yeah, <laughs> i don't know um your shit is broken we found this um you know, the other thing that this reminded me of, and this is something I've mentioned before, is for bad guys, if they really want to go after a holy grail in an organization, go after the vulnerability management system. So if you're running, you know, I'm not going to pick on Rapid7, Tenable, whatever, uh, Nessus, whatnot. Um, most of the time, those tools have root or admin level access to almost every object in the enterprise. Yeah. As well as incredibly detailed information about them diagnostically uh you know a whole bunch of information about what vulnerabilities might be present on them what os and patch levels they're running what what applications are running and what services are open uh and you know i i don't know that anybody treats that with a level of severity and concern that we probably should because if you think about bad guys breaching something like your vulnerability management system that's really scary yeah, because who you know, who would suspect that your vulnerability management platform is trying to you know attack right. your systems? Well, that's kind of normal. 
Right, exactly. It's whitelisted across the board, typically. Um, you know, and we don't really have a, a story on this, but it came out over the weekend that, that there are some, some uh, vulnerabilities in FireEye consoles and, and various you know, pieces of equipment in the FireEye uh, you know, offering that could give people things like remote root access and such. And so, you know, it's a little embarrassing for FireEye, and there might be some weird drama around that that is yet to be determined. It, there's allegations that FireEye wasn't being very nice, but um, until we get some confirmation, I you know I don't want to say that as authoritative, but um, but this guy who found this vulnerability, which was confirmed, says he's got up to thirty vulnerabilities in FireEye. So we take a step back. We say, okay, you know, obviously our security architecture is not immune from attack. Uh, so what sort of attacks could happen against other architecture, you know, other pieces of our security architecture? And if I were the bad guy and I could get to it, man, I would love the information in that vulnerability database. <clears throat> it's like a roadmap. Yeah. Yeah, but, but you know, I, I got to tell you, the skeptic of me says, uh, I'm not sure that he, generally you have to go to that much trouble when, you know, phishing emails are so much easier. Yeah, you have a point. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so the other thing that concerned me about this, and I, I, I probably didn't convey this well earlier, is well, a lot of... of oh, I know, I know. I'm like that. That's <laughs> how I roll. Um, so, so a lot of these open source projects are community-driven, and you know, Bugzilla is a popular platform, and I'm not, there's, I don't think there's any implication that Bugzilla was in any way responsible for this. Um but the, I guess the point is that with these really broadly collaborative platforms, I'm, I'm not convinced that Mozilla is one of them, but there's lots of other open source projects that are very pervasively used that are publicly accessible. You know, they have to be by definition. You, you, it's, a, it's a community that's maintaining these things. And I, again, I wonder how often with little oversight does this sort of thing happen? That's a good question. Uh, you know, especially when you're opening up to almost anyone, maybe you've got to be really, really tight in your rights management of what any one individual who isn't incredibly well vetted can see. Yeah, and in, and in fact, they say Mozilla went, is going through and uh, kind of cleaning cleaning up the the access circle of people who are uh, able to access this data, and they're also implementing two factor. So, um, yeah. Uh, and, and I guess the other the other thing that that struck me about this is this is yet again another case where I suspect, especially looking at how Mozilla is reacting, of people not understanding the importance of different kinds of data. Right. So who would have thought, you know, bef- prior to this, that probably was not considered very critical application, or the data in it was not considered very sensitive. And and I think it's often a lack of imagination that leads us in into some of these little traps that we we find ourselves in. Well, we've seen this before. We saw this with RSA when people went after them to uh, breach some government contractors. We saw this with Bit9 when people went after Bit9 and got Bit9 to trust some malware they wanted to apply it elsewhere. You know, these two-stage attacks, if this was indeed that, this might have just been happenstance that, you know, maybe not a two-stage attack, that you know, there wasn't maybe a secondary target. Uh, that we know but, of, right? That we know we of, correct. Know. We don't know. Uh, 
these are the types of situations we've got to start thinking through. Yes, this in and of itself, this data may seem not that critical, but what if I can use it in a targeted phishing campaign? I think the I think the biggest recent example of that is OPM. To be to be honest, I really got the sense that they just totally didn't comprehend the sensitivity of that data. I mean, obviously, I think they knew that it was sensitive, but I thought I think they thought about it was sensitive in the context of you know what was personal information, but not not you know kind of strategically sensitive information. And and I, I just I, I think this is a very pervasive problem that we the IT industry has. Yeah, I would agree. So anyhow, beat that one into the ground. So we're going to move on to the next story, which comes from the uh, Dark Matters blog, and the title is "Non-Technical Measures for Mitigating Insidious Insiders." Uh, so, you know, the insider threat kind of uh, rears its ugly head every now and then, and people. Uh, uh, posit new and innovative things. Uh, but a lot of times they're very technical based. And I, I thought this was an interesting kind of recap on low tech things. Although some of it is not that awesome. So the first one is conduct background checks, which except for some countries I'm aware of who do not permit this, uh, I, I think this is just a very basic check. I mean, I, I, I really don't know of it, at least here in the U.S., I don't know of any employer that doesn't do at least some level of background check. They do go into a little more depth, like you know, polygraph tests. And, um, you know, that's... Uh, you know, the, the polygraph has been proven to uh, actually be very, very flawed. Uh, absolutely. And you know, a lot of people will talk about this, but in many, 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 many cases, the polygraph is actually just a prop to do interrogation and psychological manipulation of whoever is being polygraphed. Yep. Um, you know, I don't want to go off off on a tangent, but there's lots of, of sort of critical reports on this and, and some investigative TV shows that show not that it isn't effective, but it's not doing what everybody thinks it's doing. It's used as a prop for a very skilled interrogator to trip up someone they think is lying. By the way, similar to police dogs. This is why you have Lacey. Now we understand. <laughs> Loss of puppy is purely there for psychological manipulation. That's that's right. You got it. <laughs> uh, well, and, and I, I, I completely... Um, I agree with you on that's my understanding of polygraphs too but at the same time whatever you think about their effectiveness they're expensive i mean some of this stuff is quite an investment and i'm not sure a lot of companies and organizations are going to be up for you know up for that kind of thing but you know i guess at the other on the other end of it you know notwithstanding the you know the question, the dubious nature of the polygraph. Uh, it it seems like a reasonable precaution to be taking. Um, although, well, although, so here's here's the question: What are you going to do with it? What what level of red flag coming back on a background and, check is going to deny somebody employment? Exactly. That's that's the uh, that's the big question. You know, I mean, it, what what's your clip level? You know, and and I have heard of people not getting a job because their credit score was too low um, or 
you know they they had filed uh, bankruptcy or they uh, you know they had gotten some uh, you know misdemeanor conviction years ago and um, you know I, I I guess at some level I'm a little put off by that concept but you know I, I it's it's a it's a, it's a hard thing to to wrestle with I guess. Well, and sometimes what they may do is ask you about that information on the application and then see if you lie. Well, I mean, that's a whole different That's yeah, a whole but, different I mean, thing, yeah. That that's also a reason to do this, right? If you say, "Hey, have you ever been convicted of a felony?" and you say no, and then it shows up in your background check. Whereas if you said yes and explained it, that might not have been a deal yeah. breaker. Yeah. I Yeah, li- I mean, I I agree with you there. Uh finding trying to trying to um, evaluate the honesty of pr- prospective employees, I think is a very important uh, skill and capability, you know, especially in, in uh, sensitive jobs. So this could explain why you've been unemployed for the last decade. Uh, well, you know, that garbage company won't call me back. <laughs> so uh, number two was train managers and conduct uh, train managers and conduct employee reviews. And the concept here is that your managers ought to ought to be trained on the different kinds of warning signs that they should look for. Um, you know, such uh, terrible things as getting divorced and um, you know being unhappy with with their jobs, feeling that they are underpaid or disrespected. Um, filing for bankruptcy, having problems with gambling or divorce. And, you know, I guess there's lots of, um, uh, you know, as with what we just talked about, there's a spectrum here, right? I mean, half of the damn country in the U.S. gets divorced, so that's not necessarily a big uh, predictor. But And the other half was on Ashley Madison. Well, that's true. That's very true. Um, and I do think this makes good sense, but I would say... Um, Kind of like the the poster I t- retweeted, you know. It, it, I'm I'm not quite there that uh, a patriotism is riding on your coworker, but you know, whatever. I don't even want to introduce the environment with a union representation too. Do want to talk about make it really complicated to do this stuff? Yes, that's right. That's right. Uh, number three: implement security awareness training, uh, and. You know, when I first read that, I'm, I thought, oh, here we go. But actually, they uh, th- their angle on it was sensible. I thought their their point is that your security awareness training needs to make it very clear how people, you know, wherever they may be, can report concerning things, you know, potential fraud or theft or whatever. Yeah, it's almost like incident response playbook, uh, you know, for suspicious behavior. Right. Right. And then uh, number four, define a response team with a C-level champion. And, you know, they they point out that normally this is an IT security type function, but they point out that you really need people from your legal department, HR department, facilities, risk and compliance, and, and also an executive, you know, executive support to... Uh, to be behind it because, you know, p- potentially there will be food fights, right? Organizational food fights associated with these. I mean, I think we've all seen some of those and it 
goes a, it goes much better if you have higher level buy-in. So some uh, some ideas for you there. Our next story comes from Ars Technica. The title is FTC can sue companies with poor information security, appeals court says. So we talked about this a couple of times in the past, and the story here is that Wyndham Hotels, uh, back in 2008 and 2009, had been breached, and they had, a, I think, uh, about 620,000 credit cards stolen from them. And I think it was actually from their member hotels. I mean, I think they're a, more or less a franchise, a franchiser, and it was stolen from their franchisees. And the FTC actually ended up going after and trying to find Wyndham back in 2012. And Wyndham started to try to contest that in court. And, uh, you know, basically saying that, you know, that there's all sorts of problems with this. The FTC doesn't have authority to do it. Um, they would need to declare the standards under which uh, we, we've, you know, we, Wyndham, violated and and so on and so forth. And this appellate court came back and said, you know what? They do have the right to fine you, and they don't actually have to tell you what standards you have to meet. They can just kind of arbitrarily determine what is reasonable. And that's the that's the by the way the most concerning thing about this for me. I, it's kind of a double edged sword, right? Because on the one hand, clearly there's an epidemic problem of organizations not um, you know not having appropriate levels of security. Not going to say Ashley Madison, but like Ashley Madison, right? Um, and and the the reason the FTC is in the picture, by the way, is that their 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 point is. If you are a commercial business entity, if you're if you're a, a business entity competing in the market and you cut corners that put your customers at risk and your competitors are not, your competitors are at a disadvantage to you. And and so that that's kind of the, the fundamental premise of of their argument. They're, they're trying to make sure that, you know, number one, the consumers are protected and number two, that there's a level playing field. So look out, you know, that I, I, I'm, I'm not sure that they've often exercised this, you know, relative to the number of breaches that have happened, but they, I know they went after LabCorp who ended up filing for bankruptcy here in Atlanta. Uh, and they have settled a number of cases with, uh, the, the makers of mobile apps in the past, uh, I think we may have talked about those in the past, you know, where the mobile apps claim to be secure. And when you look at it, they're, you know, transmitting your data completely un- unencrypted. And, uh, and so they've, they've successfully find some of those kinds of organizations. But uh, you know, the, the point of this article is that if you are an entity that gets breached, you know, it might not just be the class action lawsuits that you have to worry about. It, it could also be the, the FTC coming and, uh, and slapping you with a fine. Yeah, it is crazy. Uh, you know, I think we're going to have a lot of challenges for the FTC to determine what level of quote-unquote negligence is worth fining. How do you know what their line is going to be? That's the that's the concern to me, is that there's really no safe harbor here. They're They're not defining a clear bright line of you know what's what's an acceptable level of security 
if you have this or, and you, you still get breached, we're not going to come after you. The, the problem is they're, right. not, they're not defining that. It's kind of like uh, you know, Judge Potter with uh, pornography. You know, I guess mm-hmm. we'll know it when we see it. Yeah, it, you know, it's it's also very interesting in the age of Mandy and, you know, sending out letters like, there's nothing you could have done oh, to protect yourself. Oh, great point. Great point. So, it will get interesting. I think there's going to be a whole bunch of case law that's going to end up being developed, and I really don't know that our legal system is prepared for stuff this technical and this esoteric to be judged by, you know, there's probably maybe 15,000 people on the planet. Who can really determine this stuff? I don't know. It's yeah. it's a very very rare skill. So we'll see. <laughs> there, so I'm I'm listening to uh, the audiobook, um, thinking fast and slow, and mostly I think slowly apparently. Uh, but uh, anyway, they, they were they, there was a comment in there. I don't remember who the quote was from, but they were they were describing um, you know, the the concept of statistical regression. And how that comes up occasionally in court cases, and uh, some some lawyer, I think it was, said, "Whoever has to explain the concept of statistical regression to the jury is going to lose." Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and and it just makes me think of this. So. Because you know, there's no one formula for was your security negligent. I, I mean, you could try to apply, but again, everything is a risk equation. I think anybody could hire a, an expert to defend their particular position, you know, mm-hmm. and that's the that's the problem. Is that this is completely arbitrary? All you know is that they got breached, right? When in many ways, if they really, really, really wanted to do good, and I hate to even suggest this, they're better off trying to help companies before the breach. Uh, yeah, yeah. But that's a whole different, you know, that's then a whole new set of audits and a whole new set of games being played and a whole new uh, yeah, they standard. Could, they could do like a HIPAA type thing where they come out and proactively audit you. They could hire like the big four to come out. Oh, but that would be fantastic. Lacey, Lacey, go by Jerry. <laughs> go by Jerry, Lacey. <laughs> All right, let's move on. The next story we have comes from uh, the Naked Security blog, and the title is Microsoft Word Intruder Revealed Inside a Malware Construction Kit. So this is pretty interesting. Uh, the, the, the deal here is that there is a malware as a service where they will take uh, a Word doc of your choosing and a piece of malware of your choosing, and uh, they will bundle it up into your Word doc with an exploit, right? And and so the idea is that they kind of handle weaponizing the Word doc for you. So um, whatever, whoever opens it, presumably they're vulnerable to something, um, gets infected with the malware that you provided. And the, you know, the malware could be a rat or it could be, uh, apparently it should not be a spam bot, however. Because uh, you know this this uh, malware as a service comes with some some fine print, which basically says that you can't do anything that's going to draw attention to yourself, like using the word docs to infect uh, victims with spam bots that go off and you know, spam lots of people. Because I assume uh, they don't want you know, that this service doesn't want the attention. Uh, so. 
the reason I brought this up, right, is this is just, you know, another kind of stone on the path along the lines of uh, this, this whole ecosystem becoming vastly more mature and commoditized. And the kinds of attacks are becoming more and more sophisticated. And that sophistication is coming into the hands of a much larger population who really would never have been able to do this sort of thing before. So, you know, put your helmet on because it's getting ugly out there. It's cute. You gotta admit it. I, you know. <laughs> it is. It is. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. Um, I mean, not not a lot of practical advice other than just um, you know, this. I, I think this points in the direction that our industry is headed in. So, Yeah, what it really comes down to is, once again, we are making it easier and easier for custom, purpose-built malware to go after specific targets. Yeah. And, and this is the fundamental problem with antivirus or threat you know, intelligence or any of that stuff, is you're still relying on somebody else to have gotten hit by it first. Yeah. And they actually say in this article, they say something that I've, I've been concerned about for a while, I'll just quote it. But there's a fascinating middle ground where cyber crooks for the first time or from the first group are quietly adopting the more subtle approach of the so-called advanced persistent threat of the second group. And the first group and the second group were basically, you know, the um the just commodity criminals in the second group being, you know, the nation states. And and you know, with each right, because sec- only a nation state could do any sort of APT technique. Well, no, that's but that's their point is that right. the the you know the these everybody's kind of looking at what the nation states are doing and copying them, and so now now you you, you and this is something I think we've we've had some trouble with accepting for a long time, but it's becoming more and more difficult to accept that these advanced attacks are actually that advanced. I, I I mean, I think what we need to do is kind of re-baseline what we consider to be advanced because, you know, the game is changing pretty rapidly. And uh, these aren't advanced anymore, friends. Yeah, but like we've often said, it only needs to be as advanced as it needs to be. Yeah, true. But you're right. I mean, the this is a continual arms race, and the bar is continually moving. Yeah, but we we just don't seem to be, is at least in my view, as an industry, we don't seem to be accepting of that concept. We we just keep calling, you know, uh, antivirus evasion techniques. Oh my God, that's an advanced attack, you know. And well, I think enterprises generally have this concept that their vendor will resolve the problem for them. They have this concept. Okay, yes, I've got an antivirus. Yes, the bad guys are trying to evade it, but my antivirus vendor is doing things to uh, find the new evasions and alter their code to keep up with those evasions. And uh, but that's probably not always true. I think anybody who's in this industry for long enough can definitely say point to some sleepless nights <laughs> that, <laughs> where where, uh, where where they got bit. I think all of us on the ground know that, but for the folks who are deciding budgets and strategy at executive levels, you know, they've been f- fed a, a bill of materials from the vendors for many, many, many years. But, but what's the alternative, though? I mean, it's not... 
Well, I think the alternative comes down to actually looking at statistics in your environment and learning from your peers what really works and what doesn't work and being honest. And here's the problem. I think that there's a whole lot of incentive to not to be honest about the effectiveness of controls for small incidents. And once a big incident happens, you can no longer hide it. But the small incidents is where we can learn from to adjust and be ready for the big incidents. And I think for many CISOs, in general, there's probably an incentive not to say the house is on fire. I, I think you're probably right. And, you know, they've got, they've got limited budget to deal with, and they've got limited clout, and there's only so much they can do. They've got to work with the business and facilitate the business. So, you know, there's, there's only so much FUD, fear, uncertainty, and doubt, that a, that a CISO can spread to the executive ranks, right? So he's got to choose battles. And there are times when CISOs have to, for lack of a better term, dance around the issues a little bit. And... Yeah. I think it's inevitable in a corporate environment. I, 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 still, I still can't help but think at some point we're going to come to the realization that we just need a fundamentally different approach because of what you just described. You know, we're, we're, we're just like self-deluded, you know, yeah. and that, that we can, we can uh, go and apply the, the latest pretty, you know, pretty package of software to our systems and, and that's going to save us. And, you know, the reality is it's not, or at least not for long. Um, and, and so I, we, we just, I don't know. I don't know what the answer is, but we just need to, to do some kind of major refactoring. In my <laughs> mind. That's the incredible insights we provide on this show right there. Yeah. Sorry. We I'll, don't know what to do, but we know what's wrong. I'll, I'll get back to you next week when I've got it all fixed. <laughs> Anyway, so uh, so yeah. Speaking of um, you know off the rails, our last story comes from Security Week, and this I, I really like this one, and I figured you would like this one too. So uh, the title you're is play, "You're Playing with Fire, Buddy." <laughs> the title playing is with- yeah, the executive IT security problem: lessons learned from Hillary Clinton. We don't do politics on this show. It's, this is this is apolitical. So, um, well, it is at the moment. I don't know if it will be when we're done with this discussion. No, I mean the story is apolitical. So, I mean, basically, the 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 facts of the of the story are in contention. Hillary Clinton, in her role of as Secretary of State of the U.S., set up and managed and maintained a not her personally, right, but um, her own email system. Apparently, under her direction. Under her direction. Apparently in her house, right? Which, oh, whatever. Um, must be a heck and, of a house. Managed by a third party. Uh, wasn't it actually managed by an employee of that she was paying the moonlight? Maybe. I, I thought that there was also uh, some colo or some manager or survivor that was also getting looked at. So, you know what? I don't know, and yeah. I don't want to say something I'm not sure I, of. So, I don't know that detail. Somebody either, was adminning this box for her. Yeah, it wasn't Bill. Let's just say that. It probably wasn't Chelsea either. I mean, not that Chelsea couldn't do it, just that she's off doing other stuff. So, um, so the 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 big story here is that this is just endemic of the bigger issue that many organizations deal with, and and. I love the way they 
they start off, you know, executives have always been privileged users. And, but, but it's kind of a double entendre in the word privileged, so, right? There's a connection here we're not probably making, which is the concept that Hillary, in theory, depending on who you listen to, should not have been running her own server. She should have been using the State Department servers. Ah, uh, good point. Right. For, for a couple of reasons. Um, not the least of which is that, um, so the reason this all came up, by the way, is political. And, you know, there was the whole, uh, the whole deal about Benghazi being attacked and, you know, was, what was, what was the, the, the administration's role in not responding appropriately. And so there was, just keep bite your tongue. Um, and, and so the, Congress actually did a you know subpoenaed a bunch of records, and in the process of subpoenaing these records, they came to realize I don't know exactly how this materialized, but oh, Hillary Clinton's email isn't there; it's on a server apparently in her bathroom. I guess I I made that last part up. I don't know what part of her house it was in, but um, anyway, I, the bathroom usually has the exhaust fan, so that was. Why? I can't help you. I'm blaming my son. <laughs> All right. You your own hole in that one. <laughs> so, so, um, so, so, yeah, and and I, the other, the I guess the the problem there is in the U.S. You have to have um, there's an open records requirement, right? So, um, the the government has to be able to put their hands on that and and keep it for you know this just this kind of purpose. And the other is that it needs to be protected, right? And um, it's kind of, it's coming out, and I'm not entirely clear if this is fact or not, but it's stated as fact in this article that there was top secret information being transited through the email system. So let's try to take a step back from the politics for a moment and say, I think it's fair to say that Hillary being a senior executive in the White House Corporation wanted to do something different, which was her own mail server. And because she was a senior executive, in essence, was allowed to do it. Whereas a normal rank and file would not have been able to. Exactly. Okay. That's exactly right. And so in the article, they point out that this often materializes itself in, for instance, the CEO of Yahoo at one point um, very publicly refused to put a passcode on her phone. And uh, and then we've all probably had experiences with different executives wanting to use their personal devices, you know, on, on the company network. And uh, and that's that's a that's a difficult thing because they are the executives are the kind of the base of power in the company. And at this, but at the same time, they also present kind of a, a you know a, an extraordinary risk because. You know, the, for obvious reasons, you know, they have generally access to sensitive information of the company, you know, company strategic information, finan- you know, un- non-public financial information, and on and on and on. And now, you know, you, they're doing risky things. And, uh, and, and so again, the, the behavior of uh, Secretary Clinton is just, you know, t- uh, uh, endemic of the bigger problem that executives are expressing in uh, or exhibiting in in corporate the, the corporations the world over i would imagine but here here's the fundamental problem in theory security's job is not to make this decision it's to educate 
right. executives on the risk, and the executives make the decision. And that that's actually a a great point that I think a lot of a lot of us lose sight of. And I haven't had a lot of people ask me this recently, but for a long time, I used to have people ask me questions like, you know, my the CEO of my company doesn't take security seriously, or you know, and ultimately you you can do what you can do to impress on them the risks of not taking it importantly. But at the end of the day, they're the ones who are, you know, who, who make the decisions that it is their organization. They are, they have the fiduciary responsibility to make those decisions. Hopefully, hopefully the people who are making these calls get it. And, you know, one of the things that I sort of jotted down in my notes on this is uh, the execs you're dealing with, let's say it's a sales exec, couldn't give a damn, most likely, what the nerds, quote unquote, in security are telling them. <laughs> not, not his problem. He's got a, he's got a number to hit, right? Absolutely. So at that point, I think you're probably best served by having a C level risk executive who can talk at that level, and probably, uh, you know the ability to impress upon senior leadership, perhaps even the board and board level audits, the risks involved. Because you're dealing with an, an asymmetrical balance of power when you're talking to executives. And they can easily just blow off security people. Yeah. No, I, I think you're right. But I, but I think at some point there is a, it really depends on who you're dealing with. You know, if it's the CEO who isn't buying into it? Um, that's a different. That's a different but, you discussion. Know, I think that's incumbent upon security to effectively communicate. I agree. So, assuming the CEO is rational, and assuming that they understand, you know, normal business process, it then is, in my mind, upon the security team and their senior person, whoever they may be, to know how to speak adequately to that executive to get them to properly understand the risk. Now, if, if that has happened and they still choose to go down a, a riskier route than the security team is comfortable with, hey, you know what? They're in that leadership role. That's their call to make. Uh, and if, frankly, if you really don't agree with it, you can move on to a different role. Uh, but I think that's the best we can do is educate, inform, and, and monitor. Uh, you know, but I think a lot of time these things happen without people really understanding the risk that they're incurring and other people not even knowing that this is going on. A lot of shadow uh, IT, I think, happens. I, I definitely think that that happens quite a lot. At the same time, though, people really do love their iPads. I mean, let's just, let's just be clear. Well, but that's fine, you know. And in my mind, in my mind, I, I think this is a failure of security groups to just ban something like that. You're better off embracing it and managing it, and you're going to have less problems. Absolutely. You know, I, I've worked in organizations where they had no corporate Wi-Fi, and I can promise you, there's hundreds of hotspots wandering around that environment that are completely unmanaged, uncontrolled. Right. They're better off building their own Wi-Fi environment that they manage. Yeah. And similar with iPads. If, you're, if your execs want iPads, great, fine. You know what? Once that critical mass is hit, 
uh, let's have a methodology and a plan for it. And whether that be loading some sort of mobile device management on it, whether they go on their own network, whatever it may be, you've got to find a way to mitigate that risk. Right. And, and you know, but the key is it's not on us to say no. It's on us to Educate. find a way uh, as best we can. And, you know, sometimes we're going to lose those battles. I think that's the key. Is we have to be, you know, we, we, we have to do our due diligence in, in trying to address the risk. I mean, that's why we are here. Um, you know, I, I know my company doesn't keep me around because I'm pretty. So they keep me around because, you know, they want me to help contain their risks. I just want you to know that I completely passed up an opportunity right there. And I, I appreciate let that. It go. I appreciate let that. It go. I appreciate that. Thank you. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so, so anyhow, uh, yeah, you, you, you are spot on the, I think the challenge though is you have, you know, in, in, in the world of security, you have to pick your battles. You can't embrace everything. And that's a, it's a difficult, it's a difficult trade off. And I think it does make sense to get underneath some of these things and figure out why are they happening and why did Hillary Clinton feel like she needed to have her own email system? You know, uh, that, that would be an interesting question. Hopefully someday we'll, we'll, we'll figure that out. Um, You know, in the, in the end analysis, I do wonder, since we know that Russia apparently was on the official one, uh, you know, maybe their one in her bathroom was actually better. I don't know, but yeah. Yeah. Um, that's that's a strange yet compelling argument. Uh, <laughs> I don't know if that had anything to do with it, but uh, um, yeah. It, so, so in the article, they go on to say some, basically recapping some of the same things we just talked about, but. Um, one of the points they brought up is, you know, so looking for middle grounds, right? So, um, for instance, monitoring controls. And if your executives, uh, in the, 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 what they're trying to do is equate the the executive to kind of the contemporary IT privileged user, you know, because they both have elevated access to systems, but on the IT side, you have password vaulting and two-factor authentication and, you know, monitoring and blah, blah, blah. And on the executive side, they, they're usually very intolerant of all that. And so uh, you're not going to probably get them. I mean, I, I've had firsthand experience with executives saying, you know what, that two-factor crap's out of here. I don't want it. And, you know, so there's, there's a, and by the way, kind of to your, your point, uh, in that particular case, I was put into a situation, a really interesting situation where, uh, I was not, I was not afforded the opportunity to convey the importance, right? It was a very one-sided discussion. And I think that possibly happens a lot. And, and so, you know, your basically it was your opinion is interesting. However, we, yeah. we're not we're we're not assembled. We this executive team is not assembled here to listen to your your view. We are here to tell you that you need to get rid of two factor authentication. And um, uh, so so yeah, whatever. But you know, look for look for alternatives. So mo- for instance, monitoring. And and so if you know one of the if they're not going to be willing to use two-factor authentication, just as an example, maybe you can convince them that, hey, 
we should at least watch the activity on your accounts to make sure that someone hasn't hijacked your you know, your iPad that doesn't have a key code and is you know stealing the you know stealing our our company secrets. And I, to be honest, I'm a little skeptical that that would even work, but it's worth a I mean it's worth a shot, right? Yeah, I agree, and it's better than nothing. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and sometimes, frankly, uh, as terrible as this may sound, you've got to let the companies stick their hand in the hot fire before they're willing to change direction. Uh, I'm not saying facilitate them doing that, but I'm saying sometimes that's how it goes. Every company I've ever worked at has, I mean, and this has always been in the context of disaster recovery, right? No one ever wants to spend money on disaster recovery until after you've had a disaster that's caused an outage. And then once that happens, you know, the checkbook opens and, and I think it's the same kind of thing here. And it's, it, 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 their opinions don't change until their hands been burned by the pan. Yeah. So, which is sad because, you know, one thing that is being beat like a drum right now is, you know, information sharing and threat intelligence, which means in theory, learning from other people's, bad experiences and we seem to think that we're all immune until it happens to us it can't happen to us who would want to attack us we only make widgets <laughs> you know that's uh, whatever anyhow um so so that was the last story the last thing i want to do is talk a little bit about htcia i know we're, we're running a little long and i have a interview that i want to play um i you know i i I wasn't exactly sure going into it what to expect. I mean, obviously, I'd seen the the outline of the available talks, but it was pretty cool. It was um, it was much smaller than uh, most other security conferences. I mean, it was um, it was bigger than a B side, like a B sides Atlanta, but it was you know a couple hundred people um, total. Uh, but they were kind of structured like classrooms right so it was uh, it was much more intimate it was like you know 30 or 40 people tops in any given class and there were just a whole bunch of simultaneous tracks i think like a dozen maybe of simultaneous tracks happening at the same time and the other thing that i thought was really interesting and different than almost any other security conference i've ever been to and admittedly i've not been to a ton is that they were focused on uh very heavily on forensics and there weren't you know let's go hack a toaster you know there there weren't uh you know talks on on uh, well actually there was a talk on bitcoin i can't say that but you know drone you know hacking your drones and things like that it was all about memory analysis and um well high-tech crime investigation right yeah and, and i mean uh, in retrospect this kind of Duh, that's <laughs> pretty freaking obvious, isn't it? But um, what were the typical attendees like? I mean, what was kind of the demographic of the folks who went? Um, so, so I talked with you know a, a, a number of them, and my my informal poll tells me that it was somewhere around half, at least, were in some form of law enforcement uh, or you know government type body. And there were people from all over the world, you know, from 
poli- you know, law enforcement agencies from all over the world. I think there was somebody there from like the Jordan National Police. Um, it was it was interesting, you know, and um, I, I, I took one of the one of the classes was um, I forget the person's name. Shoot, uh, the founder of the volatility organization that the memory analysis uh, tool. He gave a presentation, and it was just phenomenal. And it was, um, you know, it, it probably wasn't all of that spectacular, but the way they did it was was really great. You know, you, um, you basically they they handed out USB drives, which probably in retrospect wasn't a great thing, right? But anyway, the the USB drives had um, a memory dump on it, and actually we walked through performing some. Uh, you know, some forensics on these memory dumps. And it was really, really eye-opening the kinds of things that you can do with a memory dump. Nice. And, uh, and, and, and just actually like being hands-on with it. And the other thing that I liked about it was the classes, I think, were generally an hour and a half. So it was a little, a little bit longer than uh, you know, the 50-minute the kind of get-in-and-get-out kinds of things that, that normally happen. Um, I loved I loved that. I mean, I was um, I was entertained nonstop. I learned a ton. Was great great time. I think their next next year is in Las Vegas, so I can't drive to Las Vegas from here. No, but you know there there are planes that go there. True, That's and occasionally true. catching fire. Apparently, only when they're leaving. Only when they're trying <laughs> to leave. The plane was sad. It didn't want to go. <laughs> Don't leave me. Don't make me go. <laughs> I'm glad nobody was hurt. Uh, you know. Yeah. Uh, so anyway, uh, great time. Um, I, I happened to talk to the the uh, uh, one of the speakers, and he works for Tanium, and so I'm going to play that uh, in just a minute. Uh, but I, I the reason I interviewed him in particular was uh, he just he had a just a fantastic. Talk. He was the only one who would, you know, agree to be interviewed. No, he was the only one I asked, <laughs> and uh, and it, it was it was just a great it was a great talk. He was really a, a very interesting guy, a compelling speaker, uh, knew his stuff. So, anyhow, nice, I like it. So, uh, with that, we will call it a show, and we will talk again next week, which I th- hopefully will be at our, uh, our our normal time and in, in channel. And uh, in the meantime, you can find us on the internet, www.defensivesecurity.org. You can uh, find our show notes, links to the stories we talked about. All of the 129 other back episodes are also conveniently there for your perusal. Um, if you do like the show, give us some love on iTunes. Uh, thank you very much to everyone who has donated to our Patreon campaign. I cannot... Thank you enough. That's actually really awesome. I agree. Thank you. Um, you can uh, follow the show on Twitter at DefensiveSec. You can follow Mr. Khaled on Twitter at Lurg and me on Twitter at MaliciousLink. And with that... Hey, talk- hey. Oh, DerbyCon's coming up. Don't forget, we're going to be at DerbyCon. That's right. That's right. It's, Both of us together. It's like, uh, gosh, it's like two weeks away, right? I know. That's why I want to mention it. 
and we'll have some some new swag. And it's not not a secret anymore, since a lot of people haven't. But we've got some defensive security challenge coins that we'll be uh, selling at the uh, at the show at DerbyCon, and and really really just recover our costs. It's not we're not making any money on them, but they're they're not cheap, but they're awesome. And uh, uh, we send them out to our Patreon donors. Uh, first, and we want to make them available for somebody else who may find them cool. And uh, from early feedback, people seem to like them. That's right. But aside from that, DerbyCon, we'll talk more about it. I'm sure we'll be active on Twitter about it, and would love to see everybody up there. Yeah, and we'll probably do some recording up there, too. I'm going to bring my bring my stuff. So. I love it. So expect about an hour of Jerry's drunken snoring. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. Whatever. So see you again. See you again next week. Have a good one. See you guys. Take Bye-bye. care. All right. I'm here at the 2015 HTCIA conference with Ryan Kanzansian uh, from Tanium. And uh, Ryan, can you just introduce yourself briefly? Sure. Hi there. Uh, I'm our Tanium's chief security architect. Uh, Tanium builds an endpoint platform that provides visibility and control over millions of uh, computer systems. And I specifically work on setting our product's uh, security uh, roadmap, uh, particularly as it pertains to incident response and detection. Uh, and my prior background was at Mandiant, where I spent six years doing incident response investigations and helping companies with remediation efforts uh, in the face of combating targeted attacks. Great. And so, uh, so you just, I, actually, I just sat through your presentation on hunting, which I thought was, was really great. So I wanted to take, a, take some time and ask you a couple questions. So, so based on your experience, uh, I guess particularly with Mandiant and also uh, with, with Tanium now, what do you see firms commonly doing wrong? So I think one of the security challenges that companies have grappled with is uh, attempting to find the next great mousetrap that will detect and stop all malware, known or otherwise, and um, prevent attack and compromise. And um, security has kind of gone through a cycle, I think, in the last 20 years where um, a lot of focus is put on malware detection and prevention rather than on uh, the fundamental principles of defense and depth that uh, a lot of security researchers have espoused for many, many years. And so um, one of the things that has been interesting to me is looking at all of the targeted attacks I've investigated over the years is how many common threads exist among them and how little they've changed in some ways in those years. And so basic security hygiene, particularly in the areas of privileged account management, configuration management, um, network and host segmentation, um, and patch management, are the underpinnings of why attackers have been so successful. Um, in most compromises I've investigated and in a lot of the attacks companies we work with uh, deal with, the, the attackers can behave opportunistically. They can get in via any means and use that to pivot to their intended target. And as you build defenses through good security hygiene, you really raise the bar for an attacker and you also increase the likelihood of early detection and containment. And so I'm a big advocate of addressing those core security hygiene tasks that so many companies have struggled with uh, more so than just trying to come up with the magical silver bullet that will detect every zero day and unknown malware before um, it becomes a problem in the environment, because I don't believe that exists. Good. So uh, over the years, you, you, I think you touched on a little bit, but have you, have you seen a trend emerge uh, 
with attackers, I guess particularly the more advanced attackers, but I guess you know generally one of the things i've I've seen or I've noticed and have become increasingly concerned about is is, is a lot of these nation states you know the u s included right become more activist as it you know in the in the cyber realm and their techniques are found and disclosed it seems like it kind of you know it lifts all ships right so so are are you seeing the level of sophistication raising or is it is it really still just going after the low hanging fruit uh, i think i see a mix of both out there um you see a lot of compromises where what's shared publicly uh, or what uh, consultants and investigators find privately were incredibly basic exploits, things like SQL injection or um, exploiting vulnerabilities that had been patched by the vendor months and months ago. And so there's still a lot of low-hanging fruit out there. And again, I think one of the reasons that I'm passionate about what I do is um, enterprises really need better visibility and control over their endpoints to eliminate that low-hanging fruit. And until that happens, the majority of attackers will be able to continue enjoy using some basic techniques. Now, that being said, um, there is a smaller percentage of sophisticated actors out there that are using increasingly covert mechanisms to compromise systems and persist. Um, in particular, one that I've done a lot of research on and covered a bit in today's presentation is um, further utilizing the endpoint OS, the operating system, and its built-in commands in lieu of dropping additional malware on the host to achieve persistence and lateral movement. Um, the fewer executable files and DLLs and malware that you drop on a host to achieve your mission, the lower your profile is. And attackers have gotten better and better at taking advantage of that. Now, the counter to that is, again, better visibility. Um, yes, attackers can reuse and misuse a lot of the same tools that legitimate administrators in an environment um, take advantage of, but um, if you have visibility into your endpoints and you're not just focusing on malware, um, you can find those outliers. You just have to hunt for them and have the the tools and techniques that give you access to that data. Nice. So, um, <clears throat> just to sum up, what what advice would you give? Uh, again, our our audience is primarily focused on defense. What advice would you give? our listeners from the perspective of, uh, of defense? Sure. I think the best route to increasing your agility for incident detection and response um, is to reduce your attack surface. Uh, the smaller your attack surface is, the less noise you have and the less you need to monitor. Um, I always give the example of how much easier it is to monitor domain controllers in a Windows environment if you restrict all administrative remote access to them via a bastion host, or how much easier it is to examine Windows endpoints when all third-party applications are patched and users don't have full administrator rights to their system. It ends up being cleaner, and it ends up, uh, as a result, being easier to identify um, rogue and malicious activity from the normal background noise of an operating environment. And so um, attack surface reduction via good security hygiene is maybe not the most glamorous thing, but it really makes a meaningful impact in not just reducing successful attacks, but making it easier to detect and contain um, attackers that do successfully establish an initial beachhead in an environment. Nice. So uh, I know you, you said you work for, for Tanium. Can you just give us a, you know, 30 seconds or a minute on what Tanium is and what, what they do? Sure. So we build an uh, endpoint communications platform uh, that uh, is used to have visibility and control 
over an organization's endpoint systems. And it's built to operate at large scale and speed, um, meaning we have customers with over three or 400,000 deployed endpoints, and we can provide them with 15-second visibility and control into those endpoints. And that visibility goes through everything from uh, IT and security operations tasks like application management, patching, configuration management, and privilege management, to instant response ca- use cases like looking for IOCs, collecting and harvesting forensic data, uh, and then finally acting on systems, be it remediating a compromise, eliminating malware, uh, or deploying a hardened configuration or patch to a set of impacted systems. Well, very good. Thank you for joining me today. Great. Thank you very much for your time. I think you're right, actually. When, when am I not right, actually? Usually. Hey! 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 Yep. That's that's mean. At least I'm gonna you, cry. At least you didn't say man on the on the internet. So the good news is I actually read the stories and made notes. That is good. I try to do that at least once out of every four shows. That's that's my goal. I took sleeping pills. I don't really remember how many I took. Oh my. You die in the podcast will be our top rated podcast ever. <laughs> Thanks, man. I'll publish it in your memory. (laughs) Keep it going. (laughs) So you ready? Yes, sir. I believe so. All right. Let me just kind of shut down my porn torrents so I've got plenty of bandwidth. Good. Good, good. Your mom put out a new movie, so I had to get it. My God. All right, ready. You've been thinking about that one for hours. (laughs) I'm thinking about your mom for hours. (laughs) You kind of set that one right up. I I couldn't, you know. (laughs) All right. I'm just giving giving you outtakes to use. That's all. I'm I'm here to help you, mister. Bye-bye. Bye-bye now. Bye-bye. 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 Bye-bye.